I'm going to take a moment now to dismiss our children who are fourth grade and under. They're going to make their way upstairs to kids' crew, as we call it. This is a time of worship for them that is designed to engage them with stories of the Bible, with leaders who love them and, and pour into them week after week. So they're going to make their way upstairs. As they're doing that, let me encourage you to turn in your Bible this morning to Leviticus chapter 16. Now, if you are studying with us through the Bible, reading through the Bible this year, then I want to acknowledge that oftentimes this is the point where it gets real. This is the point where it gets really difficult when we get into the book of Leviticus. So we are, we're working a Bible reading plan together as a congregation this year that we're calling this, this, this sermon series and, and just the overall plan that we're doing, Redemption Story, because we're looking to see God's plan of redemption that is woven through the entire Bible from beginning to end. And we're reading through the Bible and each Sunday as we gather together. I'm preaching through a text that has fallen in this past week's reading as we're working our way through. So literally in the course of the year in 2023, we're going to work our way, read through, preach through the Bible, at least the large movements of the Bible as we work our way through. And we've come now to the book of Leviticus. And if you've been reading the book of Leviticus, then you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that this is where it really starts to get like difficult in in some ways, because you're starting to trudge your way forward. You're reading about these these laws and and ceremonial rituals and and, and the the priest's garments and and the things that they were to do, ritual washings and then all the things. And, And you get into this and it's easy to lose sight of what this is all about. For one, keep in mind that this is spoken to an ancient culture that is far removed from the way that we live our lives today. And so there's that obvious difference. But then in addition to that, this is written to a people who sort of contextually, right, as the the Hebrew people are living now in the wilderness, a people who are, they're they're kind of in a, well, they're in, in, literally in, in between. They're no longer in captivity in Egypt. They've been set free, but they're no, they haven't arrived yet in the promised land and inherited the fullness of the promise that God has for them. And so they're kind of a people who are, who are in between, living in an in-between space, literally, physically, but also sort of metaphorically, we might say. Like their lives are kind of stuck in this, uh, in this in-between. I'm, I'm struggling because I don't want to use the word limbo. We all know what that means. And so I don't mean limbo in the sense of how uh, the, the Catholic Church maybe has traditionally defined, not, not that in any regard, but limbo, at least in the way that we use that term to mean that they're just kind of in that place. They're, they're in between a couple of realities. And, and so it's the tension between the, the already and the not yet. That's a part of their everyday lives. And not only that, God is speaking to this people a series of laws and, and, and rules that they're to follow that would establish them as a holy people. And really, that's the point of the book of Leviticus. In fact, the name itself, Leviticus, actually means to the Levites. And so if you've been reading along, you know that Aaron and Moses both, because they're, they're brothers, of course, but Aaron is, is sort of representative now of the priesthood. And so Aaron is, at this point, functioning for 
the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, as their high priest, their, their, uh, their chief religious leader. But Aaron and Moses were from the tribe of Levi. Remember when we read the story, the sons of Israel, the tribes and, and those things. And so the Levites, which is to say the descendants of Levi, become the priestly tribe. Not every descendant of Levi, not everyone in the tribe of Levi, or the, not all the Levites were priests, but every priest came from the tribe of Levi. And so all of these priests and these religious leaders now are being given these instructions, the instructions on how they were to order their worship, their religious life in order to be a holy people. And that's the point of the book of Leviticus when you read through this. In fact, let me point you to a really good resource. If you're, if you're struggling with this, or even if you're not, even if you feel like you have a good grasp on it, let me point you to a resource that I think is really helpful. On YouTube, there is a YouTube channel that is called The Bible Project. The Bible Project is a group out of the Pacific Northwest. It's a nonprofit group, and their whole goal is to help people understand and engage with the Bible. And so The Bible Project put out a series of videos explaining all sorts of different things. But one of the, one of the, the series that they have are a series of videos that offer introductions to the various books of the Bible. And if you will watch the Bible Project's introduction to the book of Leviticus, I think you will find it very helpful in understanding the overall structure and even the purpose of the book. So you would just go to YouTube and search for the Bible Project Leviticus. That's all you got to do, and it's going to pull up. It'll give you a couple of options, but look for the one that is the, the introduction to Leviticus, and watch that sometime. It's probably, I don't know, it's maybe, maybe five to seven minutes long, maybe longer, I don't remember, but it's, it, it, it'll be well worth your time to help you make sense of and understand what's happening. But essentially, let me, let me just summarize briefly and tell you that the, the whole point of Leviticus can be summarized with a quotation from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. In Leviticus 11:44, God writes to the people. He says, be holy for I am holy. And you actually find those words written again and again in the book of Leviticus. Be holy because I am holy. The point of the book of Leviticus is to give the people a set of laws or rules, instructions that they might follow. And these instructions, bear in mind, are meant to make them a holy people who serve a holy God. That's the point of the book of Leviticus. And the passage that we're going to study today is actually from the center of the book of Leviticus. Now, one of the things that you'll see if you watch the Bible Project video that I pointed out to you just a minute ago is that there are these different categories that, that building blocks, I'm going to call them, uh, structure, and the book of Leviticus is arranged around these various points of structure. And so there are instructions for the priests, there are instructions for the people, and then there are moral instructions about laws, uh, uh, moral codes that they were to follow. And there's a structure there that Bible theologians refer to this as a, a chiasm, a chiastic structure. And you don't need to know that, but it's kind of a, a technical jargon. But the point is, it's a structure that it just reveals a level of purpose and intentionality to the way the book is arranged. So several chapters in, you have this structure that goes kind of like A, B, C, 
and then it repeats C, B, A. So it's like we're, it, it's emphasizing these laws again and again. The structure is really helpful. But right in the middle of all of that is Leviticus chapter 16. And interestingly, not only is Leviticus at the center, Le- Leviticus 16, at the, at the center of the book of Leviticus, but it actually is at the very center of the entire Torah as well. And so if you were to take the first five books of the Old Testament that are referred to commonly in the Old Testament as the law, the first five books, sometimes we call that the Pentateuch. I mean, not the Pentateuch, I'm sorry, the Torah. Sometimes we refer to that. No, it is the Pentateuch and the Torah. Those terms are used interchangeably. Torah from the Hebrew, Pentateuch from the Greek language. But right in the middle of all of that, if you were to lay all those books from Genesis to Deuteronomy out, the very center of that is Leviticus chapter 16. And here's what's interesting. Leviticus chapter 16, at the center of of all of this, is a chapter that's devoted to the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, as the Hebrews would know it, Yom Kippur, that just means literally Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is a day that they would observe this... this, uh, Feast or this this uh, this festival is maybe a, a, a more accurate word where they would gather. It was a high holy day. It was one of their sacred festivals that they were to keep throughout the year, and there was a lot of instruction about what they were to do on this day. But that's at the center of the book of Leviticus, and it's at the center of even the entire law is God's specific instruction for how people are to have their sins paid for. Now think about that for a minute. That's not just coincidence, right? That's not just, that, that didn't just happen. There's a, there's a level of purpose and intentionality there. Uh, we believe there is the, the purpose of, of God's revealed word to us, that the Holy Spirit is working here through human authors to give us this grand design, this purpose, this plan. That's all a part of God's instruction for us. And at the center of all of it is the picture of the sacrifice that pays the price for our sin. Now, that's pretty awesome if you think about it. That at the middle of all of that, and it's pointing us to, and we'll see this today. This is really where we're going together. We will see that the instructions for the Day of Atonement actually point us to a much greater day of atonement when Jesus paid the price for our sin so that we might really understand that what Jesus did for us is at the very center, at the very heart of what it's all about, that Jesus paid the price for sin so that all those who come to him in faith might have their sins paid for, their sins atoned by his blood that was shed on the cross. And that's the center of everything. And we'll see that this morning, even as we study in the book of Leviticus. Now, we're not going to read all of Leviticus uh, chapter 16. There are 34 verses, and it's rather long. We are going to read a few verses, but before we read these verses, let me, let me uh, just say this, the final piece, before we dive in, Leviticus 16, verse 29, that we'll start reading together in, in just a moment. It's easy to look at the book of Leviticus and, and, and all of these instructions and think, what? Does this really matter anymore? Jesus came. Jesus paid the price on the cross. He, he, he fulfilled all of this. He, he, he does something even greater than what the, that the law could never do. I understand that. And so does it even matter? Well, let me, let me just offer this. In the New Testament, the New Testament quotes from the book of Leviticus over 100 times. Over 100 times in the books of the New Testament, the authors 
quote from this book of Leviticus. And so if it mattered to the authors of Scripture, if it informed their understanding of what God has done and what God is doing, I think it ought to inform our understanding of those things as well. So it's important for us to not just gloss over. I have, in, in, I have never preached through the book of Leviticus, and I'm not even going to preach through the entire book today. I'm, we're, we're looking really at one chapter. Maybe someday I'll come back and do a, a series of sermons throughout the book of Leviticus. But the, the point is just, if you were to look at probably most preachers, one of the least preached from books, I would venture to say, is probably the book of Leviticus. So I'm glad that we're going to be in the book of Leviticus today, studying this passage of Scripture, digging into these, these words together, because it's, it's important for us. It's informative. It's instructive for us as we think about how all of this is pointing us to Jesus. And that's what I want us to keep in mind this morning. All right, Leviticus chapter 16. Let's start reading from verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves. It's a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute for you forever for you, that atonement be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now what's interesting about the, the book of Leviticus pointing us to a holy people. What's interesting about all of this, as I've mentioned already, is that God is establishing a holy people, rules, in order to create uh, this, this order, this, this, this order of worship, that the people of Israel would be a holy people because he was a holy God. Be holy, for I am holy. What does the word holy even mean? If we're going to understand what that means for us to be holy, for us to follow these instructions, well, let's consider what the word holy even means. The way the Bible uses the word holy, it literally, the literal meaning of the word is set apart. Something that is set apart. Something that is reserved for a, an intended purpose, a special or a specific purpose. I would venture to guess that probably in many of our homes, we have certain things that are set apart that we use for special occasions, right? Maybe you've got certain dinnerware that you only bring out when, when company comes over, when people come over, right? Certain plates, certain, certain silverware, maybe you've got fine china, maybe it's, maybe it's just a nice set of dishes that you don't use every day, right? The good plates, right? That sort of thing. Or maybe you've got, maybe you've got towels that you hang up in your bathroom when people come over. Like all the time, normally it's just the normal stuff, but when someone comes over, you've got special towels that have like your, you know, your 
your family's crest or your name embroidered or, you know, some fancy thing. And this is the good stuff that you can, when guests come over, if they were to stay the night, they get, you know, you, you put clean sheets on the bed. You put nice stuff out. You, 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 put the, you put the best out for others, right? There are certain things that we reserve for those special occasions or special purposes. Well, the literal meaning of the word holy is along the lines of that. Those are things that are set aside for a special purpose or a special occasion. And the people of Israel are called to be a holy people. Now, that doesn't mean that, that they were just to do certain things at certain times, right? But what it means is they were to be set aside. They were to be different from all the other peoples of the earth, of all the other nations, of all the other tribes, of all the other peoples, and all the other lands. Israel was called to be distinct, called to be different, called to be set apart from all the other people. And that's what the word holy means. They were to be separated from or different from. And to say that we're to be a holy people means that we're set aside for a purpose. Well, what is that purpose? What is the purpose? Well, we've seen, and we're going to continue to see as we work our way through the Bible again and again, that purpose is that we would be a people who worship God by putting Him first in our lives. By, by worshiping Him, by honoring Him, giving Him first place, first place in our hearts, first place in our lives, first place in our families, first place in your business, first place in your, uh, in, in, in your work, in the way you volunteer, first place in anything. That we put God first in everything. And in doing that, by making Him our highest priority, by giving Him first place in our lives, that's what it means for us to sort of practically live as a holy people. There's another word that we use sometimes called sanctified. That word sanctified comes from a Latin word meaning, or the Latin word sanctus, and that means special or holy. That's what the word meant. And it's just another way of saying, so the process, sometimes we will talk about the process of becoming more and more who, who we know God wants us to be. The process of becoming, I'll say it this way, holier and holier or the process of leaning in and, and putting the Lord first place more and more as we grow in that. That's what it means to be sanctified. It's a, it's a process of us becoming a holy people. And Leviticus is pointing us to the fact that that holiness should be at the center of our identity, the center of who we are, the center of how we live, the center of what we do. And to make that point clear even, it puts instructions for that at the center of this book, of how we are to be holy or made holy, or in other words, how our sins are to be paid for or atoned. That's the center of the book of Leviticus in Leviticus chapter 16. Now what we, you can, maybe you've read this already if you're doing our Bible reading plan. If not, I would encourage you go back and read. But if you started in Leviticus chapter 16 verse 1 and read to verse 28, you actually find specific instructions for how they were to worship on this day, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. The priest would start by cleansing himself, by taking a bath in and, and, and bathing any impurity off of himself. And then he would dress himself in special clothing. Now, normally the high priest wore this very elaborate getup, this very, this very elaborate uh, robe, and, and there was what was called an ephod and a breastplate and a hat that he would wear, and the, even all the way down to the way, that he would, uh, the way that he would fix his hair and those things. All of that is instructed in the book of Leviticus. But on this day... 
One day a year, seventh month, tenth day, Yom Kippur, the priest would put on regular linen garments, just standard dress, or we'll just call them street clothes, right? That's what we would maybe call that today. So the priest would bathe to cleanse himself, and then he would put on a linen robe or linen, linen clothes, street clothes, the, the clothes of the everyday person, because that would represent the fact that what he was about to do was meant to atone for the sins of, of every man, of, of everyone. And so wearing these plain robes, these plain uh, clothes, he would go into the tabernacle. And into the tabernacle, first of all, he would go into the holy place. And there in the holy place, there was, uh, there was an altar and there was a special, uh, well, these special instruments and special, there was a menorah and there was uh, all, all sorts of special, the, the, the bread of presence that we would call it showbread and these other things. And it's there in that place that he would prepare some of the items that he would take with him into the most holy place. So the holy place was separated from the most holy place, really unique names, right? Or the holy of holies, sometimes as we refer to it, by this large veil. And before he would enter into the veil, they would sacrifice an animal. They would sacrifice a bull as an offering for his sins and the sins of the other priests in his house. And so, dressed now in his, in his plain clothes, they would offer, a, they would sacrifice a bull. And then next, he would take two goats. And of these two goats, one of the goats they would kill and they would sacrifice. And they would drain the goat's blood. And the priest would take the blood of the goat into the holy of holies, the most holy place. Before he would go into the most holy place, they would tie a rope around the high, the high priest's waist because if he dared enter into the holy of holies, the most holy place, and there was any impurity in him, in his heart or any, any impurity on his person, then he would die in the presence of God. And you might think, well, that's extreme. That wouldn't really happen. Actually, it did. Go to Leviticus chapter 10 and look at verses 1 and 2. You see that it happened to two of Aaron's sons. And even in Leviticus chapter 16, the way chapter 16 starts, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two of his sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died... And so this whole thing actually is instituted on the heels of the deaths of two priests who went into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, in a, in a manner that was unworthy, in a manner that was unclean. Inside of the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, probably most of all of us have seen Indiana Jones, right? You've seen Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so you've seen the Ark of the Covenant. You know a little bit of the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones. And that, sadly, that's maybe all many people know of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a very special box that, that the children of Israel would carry before them. The Ark of the Covenant itself was a, a, a box that had certain specific dimensions. It was made of a special type of wood that was called acacia wood, and, and then it was lined with hammered gold, gold foil. And so it was, it was covered in gold, and then they had these long wooden poles, acacia poles, that were also covered in gold that they stuck through rings on the side. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant was what they referred to as the mercy seat. And it was, a, it was a statue of these cherubim, and they were, which are a type of angel, and they're using their wings, and they're, and, and they're arranged in a certain way. And all of that, all of that had symbolic meaning. You can go back and read about that in the book of Exodus, because that's where it's instructed, and, and all the details of that are laid out in the book of Exodus. But the point is, they kept 
they kept the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And it was, it was emblematic of or representative of the very presence of God that dwelled among his people. And so the priest would go into the very presence of God and he would take the blood of one of the goats. Remember I said there were two goats. That's an, an important detail. He would take the blood of the goat that they killed and seven times he would dip his fingers in and sprinkle the blood of the goat on the mercy seat, which was the, what was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, seven times. And that was, that was symbolic of complete forgiveness. Seven was the number of completion. And so seven times he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, and that would be reflective of the, the desire to be fully cleansed from all of their sins. Once he was done, the priest would come back out and he, in, a, in sort of a ceremony, he would go to the other goat and he would take his two hands and he would place his two hands on the head of the other goat. And the goat, they would refer to as Azazel. Now the exact meaning, the precise meaning of the name Azazel has actually been lost. But according to a, a Jewish book, a Hebrew book, of tradition referred to as the Mishnah. The Mishnah states that it, it had, it was symbolic of the place of demons, okay? And so the priest would place his hands on the head of the second goat, Azazel, and he would confess the sins of the people. And then one of the priest's attendants would take that goat and they would lead that goat, now this goat, upon which the sins of the people have been cast on this goat, and they would lead that goat outside of the walls of the city into the wilderness where, where it would wander until it would die, to never be seen again. And that goat, Azazel, was actually referred to as the scapegoat. Maybe you've heard the term, you, we all, probably many of us know the term scapegoat. Actually, that's where the term comes from, is the, the goat upon which the sins of the people were confessed or cast onto this goat. So they lead the goat outside the walls of the city, and, and that goat was to wonder, was never to re-enter the city again. It was to be the scapegoat that would ultimately die. Now, interestingly, by the time that of, of Jesus, which is going to be... Quite a, quite a number of years beyond this institution of this ceremony or in uh, Leviticus chapter 16. But at the time of Jesus, someone would follow the goat into the wilderness and there was a cliff and they would throw that goat, the scapegoat, off of the cliff to make sure that it died. Because you can imagine how awkward it would be if the people are gathered in the city and the goat were to wander back in among, you know, in their midst. That's maybe even metaphorical of something really that you wouldn't want anyway, right? But at this point, this is before they're living in Jerusalem, before the building of the temple, before the structures there on Mount Zion, the walls around the, this, this predates all of that, right? They're wandering in the wilderness near Mount Sinai. And so someone would lead the goat outside of the, the encampment, far away from the people, and would just sort of cast it off to, to wander and die in the wilderness, paying the price for the sins of the people. The priests would then come back in to the place after they've 
offered these sacrifices, and again, he would sacrifice, well, he would cleanse himself. He would, he would take off his clothes, because you can imagine his clothes would be covered in blood. This is a bloody sort of affair that they're doing. And he would, he would bathe himself again, and then he would offer more sacrifices now. And all of this was done, this, this process, and all of these rituals, and all the things they're doing, in order to s- symbolically pay for the, the sins of the people. They were to do this, we read even, you're to do this once a year because of their sins. But the, the problem with that is even just in, you probably recognize right away, well, did it really work? I mean, if the priest has to come back year after year and offer a sacrifice for the sins of people, is, that, is it really working? Are their sins really being paid for, or is it just ceremonial of sorts? Well, if, if you're thinking along those lines, you're, you're thinking rightly, because the truth is, this didn't actually fix the ultimate problem of sin that the people had. They could offer these sacrifices year in and year out, and the priests did. But this didn't really fix the problem of sin. And in fact, it wasn't designed to. It was actually, its design was to point the way towards something greater. And the reason that we know that is because in the New Testament, the Bible makes that quite clear for us. It makes it quite plain for us to see that on Yom Kippur, the sins of the people were temporarily atoned for or temporarily paid for by these sacrifices. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus paid a price that would never have to be paid again. Turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, and and I want to show you that the Bible connects these dots for us in a way. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, now that's what we would say of Leviticus, right? When you read the law, understand it's pointing to not just Leviticus 16, but certainly Leviticus 16 is in our sights today. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the writer of Hebrews tells us, the law could never make us perfect. It might might pay the price for our sins in the moment, but that would never work as a permanent solution. Verse 2, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having been having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see that? The author of Hebrews is telling us that the whole point is that in these rituals, in in this ceremony, there is a reminder of our sin, and it's also pointing to the fact that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away our sins. In other words... This ritual that Leviticus 16 points us to was never meant to pay the price ultimately. It was never meant as God's ultimate solution for sin, but rather it was meant as a way to teach us that we have need of forgiveness of sin and that anything that we might do on our own actually falls short because we come back to it. We sin again and again. Verse 5 in Hebrews 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, 
sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And then in verse eight, we read, and when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He, speaking of Jesus, does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been, and here's the word we, we offered earlier, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So the, the author of Hebrews is putting all these pieces together for us, connecting the dots. So what is instituted in the book of Leviticus by God was meant to serve as a teacher. The law is a teacher here, and it's pointing our need to forgiveness of sins. And it's pointing our need for blood that would be shed to pay the price for our sin. And yet, even in the way that the law is designed, it falls short. And it's a reminder to us that we need something greater. And Jesus came to be that something greater. And Jesus even taught this. When Jesus came, he taught, you don't desire sin offerings and, and, uh, and, and burnt offerings, but rather it's to do your will. And I have come, Jesus is saying, I have come to do your will. So Jesus became for us the ultimate sacrifice. Let's go back to what we just learned about the ceremony of Yom Kippur. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. Do you see that? Jesus is the one whose blood was shed to pay the price. Jesus is the one whose blood was, was spilled, as it were, on the mercy seat, the altar, and the presence. Jesus is the one whose blood, whose life blood was given. By the way, this may all seem very gross or grotesque. You think, wow, there's so much blood. Actually, you read in the very next chapter in the book of Leviticus that the reason that blood is such a central image in all of this is because life is in the blood. Blood itself is, is emblematic of, of life. Without blood, you can't live. And so, because life is in the blood, the blood, the life, becomes a central part of the sacrifice. And Jesus gave his life. He shed his blood to pay the price for our sin. But not only that, Jesus was the scapegoat. Because not only was Jesus the one who was given to pay the price, but he's the one on whom our sins were cast. You and I, we, we had done much to deserve God's wrath and his punishment. Jesus was perfect and did nothing. And yet our sins were cast on him so that he might pay the price, that his blood might might be the ultimate sacrifice, Hebrews 10 tells us, 10.10. We've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so I want us to see, in, in, on the back of your sermon guide or your, your, your bulletin, there's sermon notes that you can follow along. There are three points that I want you to see that are represented clearly in this ceremony this ritual of Yom Kippur, of the Day of Atonement. But ultimately, what I want us to see is how Jesus fulfills each one of these, okay? So the first symbol, first of these three distinct symbols, these three distinct holy pictures that we see is what we would call a holy priesthood, a holy priesthood. So in the ritual itself, in Leviticus chapter 16, the priest was to purify himself, he was to cleanse himself, and he was to cover himself in, in certain garments that were 
that were reflective of everyone. And, and he was to be this mediator between God and people. It was the priest's job to come into the presence of God to pay the price, to offer up the sacrifice that would pay the price for the sins of the people. And on this day, the priest was symbolically representing all of the people, all of the nation. Isn't that what Jesus is? Jesus is the priest. Jesus is our high priest who represents us before God, who, who made the way before God, the very presence of God, offering himself as the payment, as, as the price for us. And he's both, he, he, he's the sacrifice and he's the priest mediating the sacrifice. You can read more in the book of Hebrews, by the way, and, it, and start all the way back in Hebrews chapter 7, and it spells that out very clearly that Jesus was the priest in the order of Melchizedek, it'll say. And you'll think, who's Melchizedek? And that was a guy from the Old Testament who was a priest, a priest and a king. And Jesus was both priest and king who offered himself as the sacrifice for ourself. But not only that, because of Jesus' payment, because we can, through faith in him, we can be cleansed, we can be forgiven, we actually now are made into a holy priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says to the church, to Christians, you are, you are a holy priesthood. Uh, we're, we're a holy priesthood. We become a holy people who have the, the purpose, the job, the task of trying to share the message of Christ with others, mediating on behalf of God and others, or interceding on behalf of others to God. That's what a priest would do. Jesus was that perfectly. You and I have that function, uh, at least on this side of heaven. It's not perfect, but nonetheless, we follow in his footsteps by trying to intercede on behalf of a lost world to a holy God. So, the Day of Atonement creates a, a holy priesthood, the priest is cleansed, he's sanctified. Secondly, the Day of Atonement required a holy people. That was the point, right? Was they were to be a holy people. How would they become a holy people? Well, their sins would be paid for with the sacrifices offered on the mercy seat, with their sins confessed and cast on the scapegoat that is led to wonder and die. The, the people's sins were paid for. They were atoned for. Jesus is the one who atoned for our sins, make, making it possible for us to be a holy people. On our own, we could never be good enough. Even if, even if somehow you could be good enough to pay the price for your sin somehow, which you can't, but even if you could, let's just use that line of reasoning for a moment. Well, what happens after you've paid the price when you sin again and again and again and again? You get the point, right? We can't do it because we're imperfect and, and it's never enough. But Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves so that we could be holy before God. And so we become a holy people because of a holy priest who gave himself. And Leviticus 16 points us to that. It's at the center of the story of atonement. And then finally, what we see is God's holy presence. This third holy, uh, distinct, holy uh, reality that we see in, in Leviticus 16 is the, the truth of a holy God who dwells among his people in order to make them holy. That's what the holy of holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant resided, that was what it was representative of, is that the presence of God had come to dwell with people. In fact, when you start the book of Leviticus, if you read in the book of Leviticus, what you read in the book of Leviticus is that we read that God called to Moses 
from the tent. In other words, Moses couldn't come into the, the tabernacle. He couldn't come into the tent to meet with God because he was unholy. And so God called to him from the tent and gave him these instructions. Later, when you go on and read, you read that God spoke to Moses in the tent. By following these laws, by being purified and cleansed through keeping God's instructions, the people were sanctified, they were made holy, they were purified in such a way that they could enter into the presence of God. And God would speak with him and he would meet with them, Moses particularly, in this tent, in this tabernacle, this dwelling place of God. That's so important that we understand that, that we can come into God's holy presence we can experience his holy presence with us because Jesus sacrificed his life as payment for our sin. In other words, if sins have to be atoned for, if the price has to be paid, blood has to be shed in order to pay the price for sin, and Jesus was both the sacrifice and the priest, he has made a way for us to be right with God so that we can dwell, we can live in God's holy presence. God calls us as his people to be, in whole, to be holy in order that we might dwell in his presence. In other words, in order that we might experience the fullness, the holiness of God every day in our lives. And we can do that because of what Jesus has done for us. Leviticus 16 is wild. It really is. The book of Leviticus is wild when you read it. But as I mentioned, it's pointing us to something greater something greater. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is that something greater. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. And in Jesus, we find the perfect sacrifice, the perfect atonement that makes us right so that we can live with God's holy presence in our hearts and in our lives. Praise God that we can be holy because we've placed our faith and our trust in Jesus. He is both the sacrifice that makes us pure. He's the priest who mediates the sacrifice on our behalf. And all of this is done in order that we might live in God's holy presence every day. I wonder, has there ever been a time that you have trusted Jesus by faith? Have you ever received his payment on the cross as payment for your sin? His blood shed on the cross as the blood shed to pay the price for your sin, for the wrong that you've done. By faith in Jesus, by trusting in him, the Bible says plainly, we can be forgiven. In fact, Hebrews 10.10 10 tells us he did it once for all, meaning it doesn't have to be done again and again, year after year. Jesus did it once for all so that we may receive him by faith. And that's the point. It's not only the point of Leviticus 16, I would argue it's the point of the whole Bible. Just as Leviticus 16 is at the center of the book of Leviticus, it's at the center of the law, it's pointing to our need for our sins to be paid for. Our sins need to be, need to be, need to be paid. They need to be atoned. And the story of the gospel then tells us how Jesus atoned for our sin through his sacrifice. And even that, the gospel, is at the heart of what we believe. It's at the heart of the Bible, not uh, we might, I might use this word not, not sort of geographically, and I'm, I'm misusing that word a little bit, but it's not literally in the middle of the text itself, but it's the, it is the point of the Bible. The story of God's redemption through Jesus made available to all of those who would trust in him by faith. 
You see, God wants you to come to him in faith so that he might pay the price for your sins. That the, I should say, to be a little more theologically correct, so that the work that Christ has already done would cover the price of your sins, pay for, atone for the price of your sins as you trust in him by faith. And if you've never done that, then in a moment when we move into a time of response, I would encourage you, you would make today the day that you trust Jesus by faith. As we sing a song in a moment, we're actually going to sing the song, Jesus Paid It All. That's pretty, that's, that's, that's pretty uh, appropriate, don't you think? That we would sing about how Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And even as we sing that song, if your desire is to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and trust him for the forgiveness of your sin, that I would encourage you, step out in the aisle, make your way forward. Brad and I will be here at the front, and we would love to pray with you and walk you through a prayer of commitment that you would make Jesus truly the Lord, the Savior of your life, that you would become his, you would become holy, you would become sanctified, set apart by trusting in him through faith. So I invite you to bow your head with me and close your eyes, and as we prepare for this moment of response, I'm going to lead us in a prayer, just asking God to make it abundantly clear to us how we should respond to him today. Perhaps it's a response of, of worship, thanking God for what he's done, or even a response of obedience, surrendering your life to him. However God is speaking to you, would you respond to him today. Lord, we come before you in prayer, acknowledging all that you have done for us. We offer you our thanks, God, that you paid the price for our sin with the blood that you shed on the cross, so that you became truly the, the ultimate sacrifice. And Lord, we understand that it's because you paid this price for us that we can be forgiven. Our sins were cast on you so that we might live purified, cleansed, whole, So, Lord, with hearts full of gratitude and thanks, we say that we want to put you first. We want to acknowledge you as Lord by putting you first in, in every way in our lives as we seek to live in light of what you've done for us, Jesus. All this we pray in your name. Amen. As we stand together this morning to sing this song,